This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Over the years, we've heard a fair amount about the importance of employing empathy in efforts to make peace and avoid conflict. Whether it's diplomats trying to craft a peace agreement between warring sides or family members just trying to get along with in-laws, empathy seems to be a big key. One of our hosts, Suzanne Kreider, wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into the concept of empathy, so she lined up today's panel, starting with Dr. Sam Richards, an award-winning teacher and sociologist at Penn State University, and Dr. Lori Mulvey, the executive director and co-founder with Richards of the World and Conversation Center for Public Diplomacy at Penn State. The two are also married, and Lori Mulvey started off with Suzanne by offering her definition of empathy. Really simply, empathy is really just a thought experiment where we attempt to stand in the shoes of another person, even another creature, I would say, and see the world through the quote-unquote eyes of that being. I think that empathy is an opportunity to see the world from a perspective other than the one that we're used to using. And empathy is one of the most difficult things that a person can do. Our program is about peace. Why is it important to empathize with their enemies and try to make peace? Well, you know, peace, authentic peace will never happen and it never happens without some degree of empathy, without some degree of seeing the other person as some as a being that has the same kind of value that you do. And I think about, we do a lot of work with militaries. And I think about, you know, in, ha- in the conversations I've, I've had with officers, officers of different sides of a conflict, and how much respect so many career military people have for their enemy, you know, their counterparts, who are sort of at the same level and same rank that they are. And it's so fascinating to imagine that, you know, in this world of kind of peacemaking, here it is that, you know, people are able to come together who are, you know, deep, deeply entrenched enemies. And they're still able to have a sense of understanding and respect and empathize with that person on the other side of the battle. And I think we see lots of examples of that. But, you know, it, it happens even at that level. So without, without some degree of it, you know, we will never get to peace. I also think that um, I, I know this from many colleagues in conflict zones around the world, that after you war with your enemies, you still have to find a way to live um, together on the same planet. We have a colleague in Northern Ireland who says, you know, we've ki- we killed ourselves for, you know, X number of years, and then we finally went back to the beginning and, and had to talk. And I think, and, and, you know, that's one dimension of it. The other dimension is really who are our enemies I think that we often get it wrong. Um, and I actually think that our enemies are often a lot closer and they're people that we think that we trust. Uh, and, and that's a whole other conversation. But I, I think that we do a bad job a lot of times of deciding who the enemies are. Uh, so once you start talking to people and you realize, oh, wait a second, that is not where my enemy is. Where you know, I think it's a different world. I wonder if my enemy is me. Well, and then there's, of course, that. <laughs> For sure. For sure. You know. Well, how can empathy help people be less of an enemy to themselves? 
every every external conflict is a mirror to an internal conflict is how is how I see it. And so if I can't love and accept what I who who I am, I certainly can't do that. Uh, for people around me, and that's all—it's all—it's cliche on one hand. We, I mean, most of us have heard that many times, but walking into that every day is um, is really powerful and changing. And I think we see it all the time when we look at this conversation about who is our enemy. Yeah, and I think in the when we're in the territory of empathy, it's really difficult to have a to sustain an argument with somebody else when we're really at peace with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you know. Uh, this is the the core of, say, like a Buddhist philosophy, but it's really at the the core of probably all philosophies and all religions and spiritual perspectives. I've also noticed this isn't directly to your question, but I notice that when I'm not at war with myself, I actually can allow somebody else to be at war with me, and somehow not taking it personally allows us to take another step or allows us to move somewhere else, as opposed to me just fighting back. If I can accept what I've what I've heard and not again not fight, it's it changes the game. Lori, what is the World in Conversation Center, and what does it have to do with empathy? Well, World in Conversation is a center for public diplomacy, which is sort of on the ground diplomacy, people to people work. And what we do there is train young people, undergraduate students to facilitate dialogues. Um, Mostly what we're doing is initiating dialogues at this point, but the connection to empathy is uh, that a facilitator, uh, which is the great focus of our work of what it means to be a facilitator, a facilitator really has to specialize in empathy. They have to be able to be taking all sides at every moment in a conversation, which is pretty fierce work. Because, uh, you know, the entire world wants you to take their side. But you've got to be able to really stand in everybody's shoes um, as they're speaking, as they're sharing in a dialogue. I'm guessing the people in the group know the facilitator will take everyone's perspective. Is that true? Well, I don't think so, because mostly we don't have the experience in our world of people who take everybody's side, perhaps maybe a referee. <laughs> um, but, traffic. Uh, traffic <laughs> maybe that too. <laughs> but, but I think that um, a facilitator really has to do a lot of trust building. And really, they get tested in the moments when things get the most intense and people are usually hesitant to go there too quickly. So it really is a process. Um, and really, we don't get that kind of trust um, out of the gate. And mostly people don't like it when other people take everybody's side. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a really difficult role to take, which is, I think, why what Sam was saying, empathy in its essence is a really radical thing to do. Sam, you teach a sociology course at Penn State on race and ethnic relations. What does that have to do with empathy? I think that... If we are going to make any progress in the world of race and culture and difference and building bridges between different subgroups, it's really critical that we listen to the experiences of other people and the perspectives of other people. And without doing that, we're, we're not going to make much progress because we're going to remain in our own small little worlds. And so my work in my class is is really fundamentally grounded in empathy and trying to get students to take a journey, have an experience, see the world from a, from a different lens, from a different perspective. And, and what's difficult about that is that this word empathy has become so popular in some ways that a lot of people assume that they're doing that, um, i.e. looking 
at the world through the eyes of the other. But it's really a, a, a difficult thing to do and to do meaningfully. And so I think you actually have to get through a lot of noise where people think they've already done that in order to actually um, help them to take that step to, to, to see more than that they've already seen. Lori, it sounds like there is this noise we have to get through. How do people do that? You know, I think it actually happens in those quiet inner moments when somebody else has been willing to be vulnerable enough, um, sincere enough, maybe undone enough in, in some kind of space that you're in to be able to share something authentic uh, and uncut and raw and not for prime time, so to speak. And then you have a person, something, you know, opens in your heart and mind and you it, and it's received. So it's a it's an interesting combination between this like public vulnerability, so to speak, um, and then this inner quiet. And again, that's not something that happens naturally and often in a really fast-paced world. Sam, you said it's important to listen and not remain in a small world. Why can't I stay in my own little small world and just be with people I like? Well, you know, truthfully, that's fine as well. I mean, you know, I'm a... hmm. The difficulty is that when we do that, when we stay within our own s- smaller world or, or geographic region or sociological address, as Lori likes to say, and we encounter the other, it's difficult to not judge the other, to have negative feelings, to, to struggle with. Or and just so, to be afraid. Just to be afraid. And so the fact is we live in a globalized world. And so at some level for almost everybody, um, it's important to at least have some kind of understanding of what that the other worlds are. And I think that there's also some people that are, I like to say, bridge people. And, you know, the ones that do actually kind of go into different worlds and learn about those worlds and come back perhaps to their own world and share, hey, those people are like this, not like that, or we don't have to be afraid of this or that. And, and, like, and I agree with what Sam's saying. Not everybody is going to do that or needs to do that. But I think the, the, the knowledge that the, it isn't one or the other, either I'm totally local or totally global, is the important piece. And that there are places where those worlds come together. And th- that can be more meaningful and, and more rich. It doesn't all, you know, have to just be filled with fear and um, insecurity. Talk more about a bridge person. Are they born that way or how do they become that way? Uh, the nature versus nurture, <laughs> one of the foundational questions of the universe, right? I, I think probably a little of both, um, what, what I've seen, you know, how you, how you grow up and also how you come into the world. They're both always in place. You know, for me, my bridge, bridginess, if I could <laughs> say that, you know, it goes back to when I was a child and it, it might... In my earliest years, and much of this I, I learned from my mother, but in my earliest years, I was always fascinated with difference, with the unknown. And so, you know, my mother would take me to these you know, restaurants. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and we would go to a restaurant. And if people in the, you know, a of a different cuisine, different culture, and if people in the restaurant were speaking in their own language, let's say it was a Lebanese restaurant or Syrian or Mexican then my mother felt that that was the authentic food and that's the place that we should go. Um, and so, and, and if, you know, they couldn't speak English, that was even better, right? So 
from imagine as, as a child at a young age learning that kind of lesson. Well, naturally, I grew up to not be afraid of people who didn't speak English because I thought, well, they can cook good food. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the opposite experience, actually. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and although a really diverse place, as you know, it is in that area of the East Coast, uh, there there was lots of fear of the the other, and so. That that was the complete opposite experience, although within my family there was um, Catholic, Protestant divides, and so there, and, and just other kinds of things that made somewhat uh, an enemy territory experience in my, in my own family. So I think I just grew up navigating that. So I come at this from the very realm of fear and the things that we want to change, and Sam comes at it from this place of... It's okay. Be curious. So it's an interesting mix, and both are always in play with different people. What are a few things that our listeners could do to increase their bridgingness or their empathy? I think the most important thing that people can do is just talk to people with whom they've not had a conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people are willing to talk. And so whether it's a rich person talking to a poor person or a poor person talking to a wealthy person or an urban with a rural or a Christian with a Muslim or Jewish person with a Buddhist, it's just just reach out and have that kind of conversation. I would say I agree. I mean, the simplest way to go from objectification, i.e. being an object or seeing somebody as an object to seeing them as the subject of their own lives is literally to talk to them. It, I, I always say how amazing it is now that we have video conferencing technology, which we use a lot at World in Conversation. We have dialogues uh, that are virtual with students here in the, in the U.S. and then in different countries all around the world. And it amazes me that as soon as the video goes on and people are beginning to talk to each other and they can see each other's gestures and smiles and the words that they're forming, it th- immediately changes the way people see each other. Uh, suddenly, you know, our students in Palestinian territories or in Afghanistan are real. They're real people talking about relationships and family and jokes. And it's, you know, it sounds simplistic and superficial, but it's actually profound how that happens. So, you know, I literally just saying hello and saying a few words to somebody that you thought uh, you couldn't will change the game fundamentally. I wonder, though, if we're asking too much of people to empathize with people. I'm thinking about the brain. Y'all have mentioned, like, fear and judgment. Doesn't the brain do that normally? And how do we overcome that? Are we asking too much of our human brain? I mean, I think sometimes we are asking too much. Um, and so I think we, we have to recognize that there are limits to our ability to do that. Because as I know in the work that we do, it just training facilitators is labor intensive. It involves all parts of us, mind, body, spirit. And so, yeah, we do have to limit that. And that's not something that people like to realize. Um, but we have to. And, 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 and I think that then when we have those interactions, they, they make a difference that's bigger than thinking we're going to do it for everybody. I, I'd also like to respond to this. The, the research on children um, reveals that children are much less discriminatory than adults. And, and, and in many ways, it's, it's not to say that children don't also discriminate. And uh, there's a level at which it's learned. And then it's incumbent upon us to unlearn that. 
you've suggested talking to people. What if some people who are listening aren't that great at talking? What are a few tips about how to talk to people who are different? I often say, well, just start small, right? So, you know, we have a growing population of Muslims in the United States, and we have a, a growing sort of chorus or an ongoing chorus of people saying Muslims are dangerous and so on. So there's there's some degree of fear and trepidation. But, you know, learn how to say, uh, peace be upon you, you know, assalamu alaikum. And just when you see a Muslim, just say that. <laughs> it's like walking up to someone and saying hello, you know, good day. And and just just that simple engagement, it's uh, it's it's phenomenal. You know, you do it a few times, and then you suddenly do it more times, and you do it in different ways, and before you know it, you're engaging in some way that you never thought you could. But I also don't. I want to underline, though, in this, if you can't talk, actually, the more the most profound things happen when you're listening. Really, mm-hmm. it's. I, I think dialogue is important because a lot of times we don't know what we think until we say it. And then often as we're saying things, it's like, oh, wait, that's not exactly what I mean. So we have the opportunity to revise our own beliefs and thoughts. But the the probably more profound side, and I know it has been for me, is what I've been able to learn simply by listening in a, in a deep way. Deep because it's just things I haven't heard before. And so I think um, actually, what we all need to do is listen. And I think that's really what empathy is. It's about listening from a different position than the one that you're used to listening from. Because- oh, that's good. Uh, and so here's one final quick thing. I'll say it fast. Um, how often have any of us and any of the listeners, how often have any of us watched people on the streets or even in a private home or whatever, arguing about public policy or about immigrate? I mean, really having a just drawn-out screaming match. And I would venture to say not very often. If we look around us and we wherever we're at, people are very civil with one another and just engaging in very quiet and, and, uh, and very productive ways. And so what we, we can imagine that these, this, these kinds of hateful dialogues or screaming matches are happening in the world as they're happening in social media, but they're not. And so there's really not a lot to be afraid of. Just, just, just engage, just talk, just open up, or listen, as Lori is saying. As always, you can hear more from our guests and the complete interviews with them at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's Sam Richards and Lori Mulvey, both with Penn State, talking with Suzanne Kreider. Our next panel guest on empathy right after this break when Peace Talks Radio continues. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. 
We're online with all the programs in our series going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider. Next, we hear part of Suzanne's conversation with Eric Butler, who is an Oakland-based national restorative justice educator and activist. He offers his own take on our topic today, the meaning of empathy. The definition in the, uh, in the dictionary is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. But the complicated word in that um, definition is understand, which create empathy, in my opinion, because in order to understand, you have to do an action for the thing that you're trying to understand. So empathy is a... Is an action word. Yeah, understand is hard because what does understand mean to you? Un- understanding is 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 also a, an action word. It just means I have the will to um, to to get to know a particular situation. It doesn't have to be a person. It can be it can be anything. But the the will to um, to really step in um, in a situation the way that situation is, not trying to change it but trying to be there and fit comfortably in that situation and, and understand how you feel in that situation. Mm-hmm. What are some blocks to empathy? Shame is, is one, a huge block to empathy. Um, it's hard to empathize if I feel like at the end I'm going to be faced with um, some type of shame. Um, another thing that blocks empathy is not having a reason to care. I, I have no idea how fish feel when a fisherman catch, catch them. I, I don't care. Um, so it would be hard for me to empathize with a fish because I don't care how they feel. And mm. I can't do an action to put myself in a fish's position, if that makes any sense. Mm. It's a weird um, example. What can be done? Is there anything a person can do to reduce the shame? It depends on what you're talking about. Um, the first thing that comes um, to mind for me is is racism. I think that white people have a, a a sense of shame coming into a conversation about racial healing or racial justice or racial anything, um, which makes it hard for them to empathize. In situations like that, um, the thing that we have to do as um, opposites are, are, are black people or brown people is find the language to once again make white people feel comfortable enough in order to have this conversation. And I think that it forces empathy. Um, whenever I'm in a situation where I'm talking to, say, white people about race, there's a stopping point. And that stopping point comes at accountability. Um, when it sounds like the finger is being pointed at, at, at them, I've been in that situation myself quite a few times where the conversation stops when I have to start being accountable. Like I can I can listen to your problems all day with a sense of sympathy because I don't have to have an action for that. I can say, oh, that's too bad. I feel sorry for you and we can move on. But once I'm forced into a situation where I have to empathize, that means I have to look inward to um, find um to find a reason to care enough to put myself in your situation. But language is really hard because we all have our own language and what it means. So what mm-hmm. can people do to try and find a shared language? I think intentional conversations are important. Um, 
we are constantly in in the world of restorative justice looking for reasons and 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 resources in order to have these intentional conversations in fact i'm having a conversation on wednesday with about 10 black dudes and 10 white dudes on um on the conversation of race hmm. um in order to get those people at the same at the table together I had to have a relationship with almost all of those people or those people that I have a relationship had to have a relationship with the people that they're inviting. So I think relationships and intentionally building relationships is is the key start to um, finding out what our common language is. And we don't we don't have any idea. And the reason Mm -hmm. why we don't have any idea is because we don't care. And relationships are on a continuum. Some are, like, close and some are not that close. I do, like, fakey relationships. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are some tips you can give to our listeners about how to create those good relationships? It's it's not something that you can necessarily get tips on. Like I said, you, you, you have to have a reason to want to build those relationships in the first place. Um, a good reason now um, to build relationships with people is the state of of affairs that our country is in right now. We're being divided by an outside representative of something else. And and the reason why we can't break free to the other side is because we don't know each other. When we're invited to a conversation about something that's going to be hard to talk about, we should dive into those opportunities. Instead, we, um, we flake on them. And, and they're all around us. They're, there's people that want to um, have these conversations. So I, I think that the best advice that I can give is whenever there's an opportunity to have a difficult conversation, try to open your heart up and, um, to have that conversation. So I'm not trying to be tough, but I'm kind of curious. What can a mm-hmm. person do to open their heart? All of those things starts with, I mean, we can we can continue to ask why, and that can be a continuum, but we're doing it right now in, in this conversation. So um, I think the answer is it with, within you. For, for people that, that don't have a problem opening up their hearts, um, to really go out and try to manipulate some of these relationships, and I know manipulation is, 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 is a dirty word, but when we really, really want to meet people, we find a way to find the language to speak to those people. So for people that are quote-unquote woke, maybe we should um, lead that charge in building those relationships. And mm-hmm. I think that we kind of got an idea of how to do it. We just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you find somebody, for example, physically attractive, and they go to church, and you don't go to church, when you're in, in, in company with that person, you may find yourself pulling Bible verses out of your ass. And, and that's the manipulation of this relationship. And the reason why I want this relationship is because I find this person physically attractive. I work with kids all the time. And I think that um, it's very important that kids get as much education as possible. As a teacher, I have to, find, I have to be appealing to those kids. So... Um, Oftentimes, in order to manipulate those conversations, we don't talk about algebra or whatever course I'm teaching. We'll talk to we'll talk about life, and and maybe we'll have a, a old school rap battle, um, '90s rap music versus 
the, uh, the, the new age rap music, something that I care nothing about. But in order to manipulate that relationship, I have to get them interested. Uh-huh. Um, and the burden is on me, the person with the most knowledge. So as, as the person with the, the most knowledge in the room um, and the expert communicator, it's my responsibility to find out what that language is. So I think the advice that I, I would be given is um, the people that are truly woke and, tr- and truly want to make a difference, um, those are the people that need to, to start this movement and, and understand that there's going to be doors slammed in your face. And, and, and when that happens, you just have to try to open the door again. Yes. Eric, you work in restorative justice. The yes. definition of that is the rehabilitation of offenders. Using no. like reconciliation, no. isn't it? No, that's no. that is not no. Well, what is the it? definition of re- so so restorative justice gives the definition that you just described, um, because the way it's been implemented into the schools is as a tool that's used to um, deal with kids of color that are not um, behaving well. What restorative justice actually does is find out what our common value system is and then um, begs the question, how do we use that common value system as a way to penetrate our needs? So like empathy would probably be at the very top of our value system. So how do we use empathy as a way to Hmm. get the things that we need And for this example, schools. We do have empathy as a value in common. What if people say they don't value empathy? They're lying. (laughs) If somebody says that they don't value empathy, they definitely would appreciate empathy if it was coming toward them in a situation where they needed empathy. See, empathy as a conversation is kind of like forgiveness. We can't truly, truly... um, give really great examples unless we're in those situations. Mm. For example, I I have a huge heart for forgiveness. I tell people to forgive all the time. But in 2009, my sister was murdered. And that was an opportunity where my forgiveness was was really put to the task. Um, And it ran parallel with empathy because in order to forgive, I would have to find a reason. Now, that reason deals with my empathy heads on. So um, how do I empathize with the man who murdered my sister? And it's often impossible to practice things like empathy and forgiveness unless you're in those tragic situations. What can people do? It's like empathizing with an offender or the enemy Mm -hmm. to them. What what can people do? Well, I would ask people... um, to find the purest part of that person. And usually when we're talking the, the, about the purest part of, of, of who you are, it's probably going to have something to do with your birth. So if I can think about um, you as a kid and what whatever happened to you as a kid, learn your story. Like I said, empathy is an action word. That means I have to be willing to put myself in your shoes. Um, I can't put myself into in your shoes, but what I can do is I can walk side by side with you through um, through storytelling and understand what made you who you are. And often in practices of empathy, 
I ask the people that I'm that I'm teaching to imagine the worst person they can possibly imagine. And and we'd agree on who that worst person is collectively and um and figure out ways to empathize with that person. How do you empathize with, say, Hitler? And we're just coming from our imagination. The only way that we can is probably to turn him into a little boy again and imagine what he had to have been taught and and the things that he had been taught was abusive. Um, so looking at this abusive kid, um, I can definitely um, empathize with being abused as a kid. I was too abused as a kid mm. um, in certain aspects of my life. So I can empathize with him on, on that level. In order for me to go deeper in, into empathizing with Hitler, I would kind of have to um, to do something in that direction to try to understand. And I don't want to. So... Um, so, so that's the thing that's going to stop me from empathizing with somebody, say like Hitler, because I don't, I don't want to. Right. There's, I don't have, I don't have it in my heart to. But to say that empathy, or I don't believe in empathy at all, that's that's bullshit. Because you're gonna believe in it for the things that you care about. Eric, it seems like empathy involves intellectual understanding as well as an emotional component. Like, I'm wondering, when your sister was murdered, you couldn't intellectually say, well, I understand where that person came from. However, emotionally, isn't it still difficult to deal with the forgiveness? I, th- I think what you just described was sympathy, where I can mm. sit down and I can I can have an, an, an intellect about what you're going through and intelligently say, hmm, you must feel this way. I feel bad about that. And there's no action required for that except thinking. Empathy requires you to act on what you just heard in order to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. One good example that that I can that I can give you is the Martin Luther King march before the, the Bloody Sunday March. There was a call out to all of these different people to be involved in this march. And some people showed up. It was a it was a a huge showing of folks. And those people were beaten by the police and um it was captured on television. Had it not been captured on television, I don't think as many people would have cared enough to actually show up. After that happened, the Bloody Sunday march that was in Selma, Alabama on the um the, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the call out for clergymen was huge. So all of these people of all of these different faiths showed up. And the idea was, can you now turn your dogs on us? White people showed up. So empathy in that case, the action of empathy was we saw what was going on on television. Now we're going to put ourselves in your shoes by actually showing up to this march. Mm. And we know we can be beat. And and possibly that that's possibly our ending. Um, and, and that's what empathy looks like. It's it's a thing of motion. It's it's not a it's not something where you can sit back and say, "Well, I understand what you're going through." That's sympathy. Eric, I have like a whatever attitude towards people, and I think, oh, that's so loving. I just let them be themselves, <laughs> let them do ever what <laughs> they want. I really wonder though, is that empathy? No, that's a whatever attitude <laughs> toward people. <laughs> <laughs> empathy pulls you out of your comfort zone. Whatever is like, okay, I don't have to deal with you, but 
these two minutes while you're in the grocery store. So you can shout as many racist things as you want. I'm not going to have to deal with you in a, in a little while. Empathy says, I don't have to deal with you in a little while, but somebody else is going to have to. Or you are possibly going to have to to deal with somebody in a little while. So um, empathy puts you right in between um, conflict and um, the attitude that you can do whatever you want. Empathy sounds scary. It is. It is. But we also we also choose when we want to be empathetic or not. If you were walking down the street right after you got out of the grocery store and you saw a kid in the car and it was hot in that car outside, you would probably do everything in your power to get that kid out of that car. Why? It's not mm-hmm. your business. And I thought you had a lackadaisical attitude toward people anyway. Why would you go through everything in your power to get this kid out of that hot car? Eric Butler, it seems like violent events often lead to empathy. For example, mm-hmm. when the Twin Towers went down or yes. like the school shootings. I really wonder, do people need violence in order to feel empathy? Like words are important. So I don't I don't think that the word would be need. I think that um when when huge um catastrophes happen it kind of leaves us no other place to search except for um places like empathy and forgiveness and love and 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 respect and 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 help us define what those things is um when those things are when those big huge things that happen are absent we kind of become lackadaisical like you said um we don't we don't talk to each other. Um, we don't talk to strangers anymore. Um, and there's a reason why that happens. Um, we don't have to. We're, we're getting away from the humanistic way of, of being with people. Now, when disasters happen, um, I, was a, I was a victim in Hurricane Katrina. We had to go to a place where, um, I guess, like you said, the good old days where we had to depend on each other and our, and the resources that we have around us, mm-hmm. um, which is our community, mostly. More with Eric Butler and Suzanne Kreider's complete interview with him at peacetalksradio.com. Go to our August 2018 episode and click on Eric Butler's picture for that. Now, Eric mentioned the game of imagining someone as a child to help foster better empathy. When our show continues, we'll look into a program that really takes that idea up into a program promoting empathy in schools. When Peace Talks Radio continues after this short break.
You're tuned to Peace Talks Radio. I'm serious producer Paul Ingalls, today with our co-founder Suzanne Kreider, who's guiding us through a deep dive into understanding empathy and peaceful behavior. Next, Suzanne Kreider speaks with Courtney Custer with Albuquerque's Southwest Family Guidance Center. Courtney has participated in a program that really takes that idea that our previous guest, Eric Butler, mentioned, imagining people as little children to foster empathy, and puts that concept into practical application into classrooms. The program is called Roots of Empathy. So Roots of Empathy is a social and emotional literacy program for elementary school and middle school children. And it's designed to increase students' empathy and reduce bullying and aggression and increase their social emotional skills. And Courtney, how do you define empathy? So empathy is knowing how another person feels and responding to that. Uh, which sounds simple, but there are many children that really struggle with that. They have a hard time identifying their own feelings, and they have a hard time identifying how someone else feels. And uh, that lack of social understanding can contribute to bullying and exclusion and aggression in schools, and so we're trying to combat those things. Courtney, who is the teacher? The teacher is a baby. Actually, we introduce a infant to the classroom that will visit the classroom uh, periodically throughout the school year to help the children learn about emotion. Uh, We also have an instructor that guides every class, so it's not just the baby. But the baby is our star, and they help the children learn about emotions. There's also a lot built into the program about infant safety and um, infant development, child abuse prevention. And so the baby helps the children learn those things as well. The baby comes into the classroom. And how old are the students in the classroom? The students can be anywhere from kindergarten through eighth grade. The curriculum is written for all those grade levels. Okay. So the curriculum changes based on the student's age. It does. The content doesn't. We cover the same content areas or the same topics. But the way in which we discuss them and present them to children is written differently based on their developmental age. Courtney, tell us a story about a student in a classroom who really increased their empathy. So a couple of years ago, I was teaching in a third grade class, and our baby was visiting that day. The baby was seven or eight months old and sitting independently, reached for a toy and fell over and started to cry. And so my job as the instructor is to coach the children, you know, what what just happened? What did you notice? And so I asked the students, can you identify how the baby was feeling? And a little boy raised his hand and said, I think the baby is frustrated because he couldn't get the toy and he fell over. And so then from there, we kind of springboard it to let's talk about times that you felt frustrated and how do you handle it? How do you calm yourself down? How do you not get out of control? And then I asked for examples of frustration. And another little kid raised his hand and said, I'm trying to learn how to ride a bike and I can't figure it out and I'm very frustrated. And then the, his neighbor right next to him said, well, I live in his apartment complex, and I know how to ride a bike, so maybe I can help him. Aww. And so that whole exchange, you know, just from seeing the baby play, we got to, you know, increasing their emotional vocabulary, identifying their feelings, identifying how a friend heal, feels, how can we help a friend, how do we calm ourselves down when we're upset. And so that's the power of the baby, is whatever's happening with the baby The instructor's job is to use that to guide the children to increase their social and emotional skills. Babies are adorable. They are. I love (laughs) love babies. And I remember seeing this research about how people are naturally drawn in their brains to cuteness. Yeah. And there's something about our brains that help 
people take care and be empathetic with babies because they think the baby is going to keep the species going. Right. Okay. But the thing is, every mass murderer was a baby. Yep. Okay. So I'm kind of curious, how does it translate to being empathetic with the baby or then you're going to be empathetic with a mean, scary adult? Right. So one of the things we're trying to teach children is to be respectful and inclusive of everyone, regardless of who they are. And in school, that can be very challenging. Um, there's a lot of conflict that goes on between students who are different from each other or get bullied or left out. And like you said, babies are just adorable. And everyone kind of connects to their cuteness and their humanity. And one of the things we really highlight in the program is that babies are also nonverbal, but they do tell you how they feel. They tell you with their body. They tell you with their face, with their noises. And we really coach the children to try to pick uh. up on that. Because if they can pick up on that in a baby, they're more able to pick up on that in themselves and in others. I see. So when I'm older, if I was in the program, I would learn how to read people's faces. And then I would see, okay, well, this guy's upset or this right. woman's upset. Yeah. And so I should kids, get away. Some children have a really hard time with that. They really, you know, even if you ask them, how do you think your friend is feeling about this? They might have a hard time connecting with that. And if we can kind of build that empathy and that social and emotional vocabulary, then it, it, puts them in a better position to connect to their peers. And one of the things we know about bullies is bullies really do have a difficult time identifying emotion, either in themselves or in their victim. So if I can help them connect, how do you think it felt when you pushed him down the slide and called him names and pointed at him? How do you think he felt? Bullies have a hard time connecting to that. And so if we can increase those social and emotional skills, I'm less likely to be unkind and mean to you because I know what that experience is going to feel like for you. The baby is just such a great, uh, such a powerful tool for reading nonverbal cues. Mm. And the kids get really tuned in to how their baby's feeling. Mm. And so we highlight, you know, all the different pieces of the relationship with the parent, um, you know, how the baby grows and develops. We teach the children that all the love and responsiveness they get from their parent helps the baby's brain grow and teaches the baby that the world is safe and that they're loved and how important it is to take care of the baby. They don't just need to be fed and diapered and clothed. They need to be loved and cuddled and responded to in a, in a, a consistent way. And that's one of the things that help the helps the baby's brain grow. And so what we teach children in Roots of Empathy is that love grows brains. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of attachment theory, how parents and babies attach. Yeah, that's one of the um, what we call our, our program pillars in Roots of Empathy is we highlight attachment. We highlight that special bond between a mom or a dad and a baby. So, for example, if the baby comes into the room and is feeling a little nervous, we might see the baby check in with mom a lot, maybe turn back and look at mom, reach for mom, wants to be held. And when that happens, I highlight that for the students. Do you see what just happened? Baby looked back at mom and needed a little comfort, a little reassurance that we're in a safe place and everybody here is, you know, not going to hurt the baby. So, you know, we highlight attachment. We're highlighting the neuroscience piece by highlighting that this is how the baby's brain is developing based on what the baby is getting from its family. Um, we highlight that social and emotional piece. And all of those happen around the green blanket while we're just observing and playing with our baby. Okay. So the people in the program, they learn, even though they might be in kindergarten or first grade, they learn to read people's faces. Yes. That's interesting because um, this guy, Paul Ekman, he's done lots of study on people's faces. Mm -hmm. And there's an online test 
that I failed several times <laughs> <laughs> because you're supposed to look at, you know, that is just pictures of different faces. Right. But he says it's cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. It makes no difference what the culture is. All around the world, mm-hmm. people still have the same facial expressions. But they're very, very subtle. Yeah. And babies are subtle in their facial expression, you know, and we, that's another thing we try to have the children do kind of a a guided observation with the help of their instructor is, you know, how would the baby tell us if they're happy? What would their face look like? What would their body look like? How will the baby let us know if he's feeling sad and needs mom? How will the baby let us know if he's tired? Well, he might rub his eyes. He might yawn. So we're constantly coaching the children to try to pick up on those nonverbal cues because that's what they have to do all day long with their peers. They have to be able to read each other's cues in order to get along. And they get, it's like a little mascot. You know, they get, they get protective of their classroom baby. You know, if the baby cries, they, they want it fixed. You know, they want the baby to feel comfortable and um, just the other day we were, what were we talking about, uh, back to sleep. I was in my safety topic. So we were talking about back to sleep and I asked the kids, you know, why do we put the baby to sleep on their back? And they took several guesses of why, and some of them correctly guessed so that the baby doesn't get smothered or suffocate on anything. And s- s- some of the guesses were more like, oh, maybe the baby's tummy hurts. And one little boy, he said, well, I think you put the baby to sleep on their back because when you lay the baby down, they can still see you and they're getting love. And so their brain is growing while you put them to bed. I was like, (laughs) there it is. (laughs) That's it. And we're done. (laughs) But it's just cool to hear their responses because even though they're little... I mean, he doesn't know he's talking about attachment and neuroscience and responsive parenting, but he just mentioned all those things in his, in his guess of why we put the baby to bed on their back. Let's say we have a listener who never is around babies. How could they take the, uh, what you all learn in this program and translate it into something they could do? Well, I mean, you know, I think anyone can benefit from increasing their empathy, right? And so just taking the time maybe throughout your day to notice someone else in your life or even a stranger and ask yourself how they're feeling. So even just taking the time to pause and when, you know, someone is a little off at work or your family member snaps at you or the person that serves your coffee is rude, you know, there's opportunities all day long to just kind of stop and reflect and try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and then respond accordingly. So, you know, it never hurts to respond with kindness. Courtney, talk more about empathy. What can parents do to really increase the child's empathetic reaction at home? Sorry. I think, you know, the best play, the best way to teach a child empathy is to model it. I mean, we can tell children all day to be kind to each other and to treat each other with respect, but the best way to do that is to model it. And so I think the most powerful thing parents can do is to try to model that for their children, meaning, you know, talk to them about how they're feeling, how someone else is feeling, how we should respond. Take the time to try to take someone else's perspective. Take the time to try to understand someone else's viewpoint, you know, reflect on where they're coming from. And that takes a little bit of effort. But, you know, I think that's the most powerful thing that parents can do is to kind of model that behavior for their children because your children are always watching you. Courtney, Roots of Empathy is evidence-based. What does that mean? 
What it means is that it's been looked at through research by independent entities, not just Roots of Empathy. And it has about 15 years of research behind it across three continents, confirming its effectiveness, meaning that children who experience the Roots of Empathy program are shown to show more helping and pro-social behaviors in their classroom. They show less aggressive and bullying behaviors in their classroom. Um, and some of the studies have actually suggested that kids who experience roots of empathy may even perform better in school because if the school environment has become safer, if they're no longer focused on being left out, being picked on, being bullied, they might be able to be more on task and actually learn better. Well, how long is this data collected? Like if I'm in a classroom in the eighth grade, will I be followed for a long time? We don't collect data on every classroom that Roots of Empathy participates in, but we do have students who have participated in longitudinal studies where we followed those kids a few years later. So for example, say they had the Roots of Empathy curriculum in the second grade. And then we followed that same cohort of kids again in fifth grade, compared them to their peers, and those students are still less aggressive and more pro-social than their peers. Courtney, I have a brother, and he is four years younger than me. Mm -hmm. So when he was a baby, I would like change his diapers and play with him and stuff like that. Does that mean that I learned to be empathetic? It may have. And that's one of the things we're trying to teach students, because even these little ones in elementary school, you know, the vast majority of them are going to grow up to be parents. And a lot of them have little brothers and sisters or nieces and nephews. So most of them are exposed to babies in some capacity. And we believe that it's not too young for them to start getting some general public health messages on how to be responsive to babies, how to keep babies safe. Um, it's no secret in New Mexico that we have a huge problem with child abuse. And that's one of the goals of Roots of Empathy is to prepare the next generation of parents for safe and responsive parenting. But we don't know if it really made me less aggressive. We don't have like research on that. No, not not on, you know, your experience with your younger sibling. But, you know, one of the things we do know through Roots of Empathy is that children, you know, they really get attached to and protective of the baby that comes into their classroom. And they learn a lot about infant safety and infant development. And then they take those messages back into their community. So for example, you know, we cover um, never shaking a baby, never leaving a baby alone, alcohol and smoke exposure, uh, back to sleep, um, all of those kinds of things. And so the children are learning those messages at a young age, which is important if children, you know, maybe help take care of a baby in their home. It's important for them to know those things as well of how to take care of the baby safely. Is there resistance? Like some school districts don't want roots of empathy in their, in their schools? You know, my experience has been really positive. Um, principals are open and open to having it in their schools. And, you know, I think uh, you know, empathy is, is declining in our culture, and I think educators understand that. And they also understand that if kids don't relate well to each other, they don't get through their day very well. And if they're too concerned about being picked on at lunch or left out at recess, they're not listening very well to their teacher. And so, you know, my experience has been teachers and administrators are very open to the idea that if we can teach kids to relate better to each other, have less conflict, be more inclusive, everybody has a better day. What do you mean when you say empathy is reducing our culture? There's some evidence to suggest that empathy has declined over the last couple of generations. And, you know, I can only speculate as to what those reasons might be. I mean, huge, huge increases in technology, just the sprawl of where we live farther away from our families, bigger communities, less connection. You know, there could be lots of reasons why I don't, you know, I, I can't really speculate uh, the exact reasons. But, um, you know, I think that 
it, it's such an important human trait because it's really what connects us to each other. And not only can empathy stop us from being cruel or unkind, it's also kind of the impetus for us helping each other and taking someone else's perspective. You know, the the uh, phrase putting yourself in someone else's shoes, that's, that's the essence of having empathy. Courtney Custer, in the Roots of Empathy program, how do you make the connection between People are going to grow up. They're not going to be babies anymore, but everyone is a baby inside. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things that we highlight in the program is that everyone has feelings and wants to be treated with respect and kindness. And while it seems so obvious that we would treat a baby kindly and gently and with love, as we grow older, we may lose a little bit of that. And so that's, you know, one of the things we're hoping to help children just kind of pepper it into their brain as they grow up is that, you know, everyone deserves to be treated with respect and kindness, regardless of who they are. If they're similar to you, different than you, older than you, younger than you, it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Courtney Custer, talk about our listeners, because there may be someone listening who doesn't have a baby, maybe they're older. How can this program promote peace for those people? Well, there's a couple of ways. I mean, one, you know, we're all part of this community. So if people have children or grandchildren that go to these schools, you know, their kids and grandkids could be impacted by the program if the program happens to be in their school. And we encourage students to take the messages that they're getting about inclusion and kindness and respect and take those messages home to their family and their community. Another way people can be involved is to actually be involved with the program as a volunteer instructor. So all of our Roots of Empathy instructors are volunteers. And we have several people from the community, either parents with babies or people that just want to volunteer as an instructor that get trained in the Roots of Empathy program. And they're the ones that actually go into the classroom to deliver the curriculum. What if someone wants to be connected with the program? Talk about how they can do that or get a program in their own community. So uh, the Roots of Empathy organization, you know, is uh, always open to possibilities of where to expand the program. Um, in terms of expansion, you know, the best thing to do would be to kind of peruse the website and get familiar with Roots of Empathy um, at rootsofempathy.org. And there's opportunities there to connect with our international office in, in Canada and, you know, see if there's a possibility of getting involved in a, a program near you. More from Courtney Custer with Albuquerque Southwest Family Guidance Center and more on the Roots of Empathy program at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Again, that's where to find links to complete interviews with each of our guests. That's where to link to all kinds of other audio, resources, and transcripts on this and all other programs in our series dating back to 2002. Peacetalksradio.com is also where to go to make that tax-deductible donation to support this program, which is produced separately and apart from your public media outlet. In addition to support from folks just like you, we also have help from KUNM at the University of New Mexico and caring businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center run by Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.